Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about medical miracles, spontaneous healing, and the race for a cure. My first guest is Dr. Jeffrey Rediger. Dr. Jeffrey Rediger is not only a medical doctor, he has a master's in divinity and is on the faculty of Harvard Medical School. He's the medical director of McLean SE and Community Affairs at McLean Hospital, which is a psychiatric hospital, isn't it, Jeff? Yes, that's yes. right. Yep. In the outside of Boston. Correct. And he's the chief of behavioral medicine at Caritas Good Samaritan Medical Center. Dr. Rediger is a licensed physician and board certified psychiatrist. He is also, as I mentioned, has a master's of divinity from Princeton Theological Seminary. His research with remarkable individuals who have recovered from illnesses considered incurable has been featured on the Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Oz shows, among others. He has been nominated for the National Brave Well Leadership Award and has received numerous awards related to leadership and patient care. And he's also the author of the book, Cured, The Life-Changing Science of Spontaneous Healing. Jeff, I'm so grateful for you to come on the show and so appreciative of this work, because as I mentioned to you before we got started, I, I did have an experience within my own family of spontaneous healing, but I want to hear from you about what you've learned from Supreme Healers and your own experience with spontaneous healing? That's a great question. I'm really happy to be on the show and speak with you today. This was a long personal journey for me. Uh, it started in 2002 when an oncology nurse at Mass General came to me and said that she had just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and told us she had a few months to live. She went to a healing center in Brazil and began calling me saying she was seeing some amazing healings and she thought I would look into it. And I said, no, <laughs> I, I, no, not I was, going there. Uh, no, I was a new medical director and faculty member at Harvard and I didn't think anything real was going on. And I also was concerned about what my colleagues would think. So I just wasn't interested. But she was, Nikki was persistent. She began having people call me from around the country and elsewhere saying that they had medical evidence for their recoveries and did I want to see the evidence? I said no. <laughs> and um, eventually, these, as these letters came in, I did begin to look at them and I began to get curious that in some cases it looked like something was going on and that's where this all started and and it's gone a long way since then in the last 17 years, but I owe a debt to Nikki for sure. 
Well, thank you, Nikki. And let, let's talk a little bit about the, um, the realness of this spontaneous healing, because people will say one cannot just heal spontaneously from pancreatic cancer. It does not happen. Right. Yeah. You know, what's fascinating is in med school, we are taught that spontaneous remission is a fluke with no medical or scientific value. The word spontaneous in this context means without cause. And so what's fascinating is that I mean, that's not a very scientific attitude. Everything has a cause. And we just have never asked the question. And so to try to bring science into look at this has been quite quite a story for me on once you know if you're on the science side you call this spontaneous remission and you just consider it a fluke if you're on the spiritual or religious side you call this spiritual healing or a miracle but from my perspective all of these terms are black boxes that have not been unpacked with the tools of science science is brilliant at figuring out the mechanisms for how things work whether it's how a bird flies and then you figure out the Bernoulli principle and then you can fly an air, you can create an airplane eventually it's good at figuring out mechanisms. And it turns out that there are identifiable diagnostic factors associated with how these people got better across many illnesses, and we just never asked these questions before. Well, what I believe we're talking about is a healing that occurs in multiple realms, right? There's the physical body, the emotional body, the spiritual body, and all, right. all need to be addressed. Yes, that's right. That's a great point. One of the things that's caused me to think differently as I've gone through this process of interviewing all these people is that if you have a medical problem, you're sent to the physician. If you have a psychological problem, you go see a psychotherapist. If you have a spiritual problem, you go see a priest, rabbi, imam, or minister. But as th these experts in these different fields, if they don't stand back and look at the forest for the trees and see what's really going on with this particular person in the large view of things, they're only get, going to give recommendations or perspective that has to do with their piece of the pie. And what happens in these healings is it takes up all of the different aspects of the person and reworks them, those categories fundamentally. And so for a person to get better, they have to see the whole picture. And that's why we need to help our experts stand back and see the whole picture because the advice they give from within that narrow silo is not going to be what you need if you want to heal at this level. Talk a little bit about the spiritual journey, your own spiritual journey, which took you through divinity school, and then there was a shift into medicine. Yes. I was a confused kid, came out of an Amish background, actually lived in a very rural uh, culture when I was growing up. We didn't have regular access to things like TV or radio or store-bought clothes. It was a very conservative world, to put it mildly. But I was going to public school during the day and then coming home in the evenings to a really different culture. And that stirred up a lot of questions for me. It was hard for me to find the answers that I needed um, in a world that was so conservative and in some ways very painful. And so the long and short of it is I took off for college. Um, I went through a difficult time when my fiance at the time and my grandfather died on the same day uh, in 1982. Oh, and wow. that was 
really the, the ending of life as I knew it in a lot of ways. But what that did is it set me on a journey to figure out what's true. Because at that point, I had burning questions around how do you know what's true? Is there uh, value to life and that sort of thing? And that drove me into seminary. And I was going to go for one year and and then go on and get a, a doctorate in something else. But I loved seminary. I had this wonderful mentor. And so I stayed and got the three-year Master of Divinity and had three years to just go deep into theology and philosophy of science. And it was a life-changing journey for me. When you speak of the philosophy of science, and we speak of the science of medicine and the spiritual relationship between those elements, you know, isn't dis-ease when we become dis diseased, that it is some, right. some aspect of body, mind, spirit, whatever, or all three, that has yes. this uh, inability to reside in one's skin in a healthy state. Absolutely true. And it's true both psychologically and also physiologically. And to really understand what that dis-ease is and what needs to be adjusted within one's life, whether it's at the biological level, at the nutritional level, at the psychological level, or the spiritual level, is it's a fascinating inquiry. So when we speak of our health, of, of all yes. the domains of our health, you say it rests on four pillars, the three that Correct. we've been hearing about, you know, forever and ever. Talk a little bit about those four pillars and what the research told you. Okay. So, and maybe I should preface by saying that I was a skeptic when I started out on this. I really didn't <laughs> think anything like was it. going on. <laughs> so, so uh, I had three really strict criteria that I have followed throughout this whole journey. Number one, the person had to have a genuinely incurable illness according to all that we currently understand. Number two, they had to have medically indisputable evidence for accurate diagnosis and clear evidence for recovery. And then number three, there couldn't be some alternative explanation that could potentially explain how they got better, whether it's an experimental medication or anything else like that. And so that, those three criteria adhered to very closely really gave me the most serious cases of illness. And that's what slowly over the years began to dissolve my skepticism. What are a couple of stories that come to mind besides the nurse with pancreatic cancer? Well, there's been so many cases that have just caused such a deep transformation for me uh, personally and professionally. Certainly, I start cured off talking about uh, a case of pancreatic cancer with Claire, who has been one of these great teachers for me personally, as many of these individuals have. She was diagnosed by biopsy with pancreatic adenocarcinoma, the worst form of pancreatic cancer, in 2008. She was told that she had a matter of months to live, and she fully expected to die. She is a very sober, critical-thinking person who has always valued science and medicine. But as she looked at her options, they offered her surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation, and she really considered those and initially planned on pursuing those. But as she researched it, she did this research knowing that she only had a matter of months to live, and she decided that in her case, 
with her unique situation that she wanted to spend the time she had left with those she loved rather than sitting in what she said was gloomy doctor's offices with other patients who were dying. And so she decided she wanted to spend her time with people she loved, and that's what she did. And she made ended up making a lot of changes to kind of clean up her life before she died, and then time began to go by, and here we are. Wow. She didn't die. She's alive. and She's, she's alive. I just got an email from her a couple of days ago. Uh, she's now in her mid-70s and living in in uh, Hawaii, which is where she wanted to retire to. Uh, she's got a long story, and I won't try to tell the whole story here, uh, but it's a beautiful story, and it's just taught me so much about how this works. She has actually a, a website that I think is fabulous called livingwithpancreaticcancer.com. Wow. And she's just, just, yeah, and she just is so honest. She just talks very frankly about what changes she made and what changes worked, what changes didn't work, how unique it is. It's not one size fits all in this kind of journey. You have to really sort out what works for you and what doesn't. And it's just a really frank, candid discussion about a lot of issues. So when we talk about the pillars of our health, you know, uh, albeit, you know, eating well, sleeping well, exercising well, and maybe this is the fourth element, I don't know, is sort of the, uh, that spiritual care, the psychological and spiritual hygiene. Yeah, yeah. I, the, the, so the four pillars, as I understand it, number one is nutrition. And I can expound on that if you want. Uh, yeah. We certainly as a, as Actually, we need to take a break. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I had my eyes closed and I was in flow and listening so intently. <laughs> Woo, we've just blown past that one. Here, we're going to take a break and we'll be right back to continue the conversation with Dr. That's Jeffrey Rediger. The book we're talking about is Cured, the Life-Changing Science of Spontaneous Healing. To learn more, please visit drjeffreyrediger.com. On Twitter, Jeffrey underscore Rediger. On Facebook, Dr. Jeffrey Rediger. And again, on Instagram, it's that same handle, Dr. Jeffrey Rediger. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that really is a guarantee. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit harvestinghappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about medical miracles, spontaneous healing, and the race for a cure. Let's get back to the conversation with my guest, Dr. Jeffrey Rediger. So Jeff, prior to the break, you were talking about the four pillars of health, or at least we started to speak of them. And you mentioned nutrition being the first. Yeah. So we get a lot of misinformation in med school, and I think also nutritionists often get uh, misinformation as well because there's so many industries and perspectives and politics around food. So watching these people and the decisions they made and really trying to track what really helped and what didn't help uh, has been quite a, uh, a path. And so I tell people, it's not one size fits all when it comes to nutrition, but the underlying commonality among most of the people that I studied was that, you know, eat the good stuff, eat mostly plants, eliminate processed foods, sugars, and refined flours from your diet, 
if you want to eat meat, then eat animals that were happy when they were alive, not full of stress chemicals or stress hormones, and grass-fed, so that's uh, healthier kinds of fats, and not pumped full of chemicals. And uh, that's a, a summary, a little bit of nutrition. It's a big topic and a lot more than we can talk about here, but getting rid of processed foods, sugars, and refined flours is a really big deal. And is that to also reduce inflammation? Is the idea to yes. have a diet that's basically right. anti-inflammatory? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And that gets into the second pillar, which is about healing your immune system. And if you want to heal your immune system, then you need to heal the chronic inflammation in your body. You know, as doctors, we are trained in body parts. If if one wants to become a psychiatrist, then they study the brain. If you want to become a cardiologist, you study the heart. If you want to become a gastroenterologist, you study the GI system, etc. But what that and that's been brilliant in a lot of ways. But what it has prevented us from doing is standing back and seeing the forest for the trees and seeing that a person doesn't have a heart problem or a diabetes problem or a cancer problem or an autoimmune problem or a blood pressure problem, more fundamentally, we have a chronic inflammation problem. And so if you want to decrease the inflammation in your body, then you need to heal your immune system because it's the immune system going awry that's creating the chronic inflammation. And so, I mean, we have this amazing immune system with all these brilliant cells and cell subtypes that want to do their job crisply and efficiently, but for that to occur, you have to give them the proper conditions. And so one way to do that is to avoid toxins, don't over-medicate, flush your lymphatic system regularly with lots of water. Can we stop uh, there for one second, going back to the over-medication, because it is the antithesis of how most modern doctors practice. Yes. I think that's slowly starting to change, but it's absolutely true that the last number of decades for understandable reasons and for brilliant reasons in their own right, but has been really about uh, shutting down the immune system. We have immune suppressants. When a person has a fever, we often will try to decrease that fever with antipyretics, uh, Tylenol and Motrin and that sort of thing. And certainly it can be dangerous to have a fever that's too high. But what's fascinating is when we learn how to boost up the superpowers of the immune system, it kicks out not only infections, it kicks out, it's responsible for kicking out cancers, it's responsible for doing all kinds of things that keep us vital and healthy. And so I really talk and cured a lot about what it means to create a really strong immune system that you don't, so you don't have to worry about infections as much or worry about illnesses as much. When we talk about boosting the immune system, are nutritional supplements or vitamins helpful? That's a great question. I think there's the research around that is really mixed. What I believe, and I talk about this in Cured, is that it's not so much the individual supplements that seems to be important. It's getting the dense nutrients into your body. Foods have all kinds of complex chemical interactions, and I have not had experience with seeing people get better by just taking certain supplements without radically changing the nutritional density of what they put into the body. So I think it's more about a whole foods diet where all those chemistry 
the chemical reactions can occur in a complicated way rather than just one supplement here and another supplement there. It's, it's a lot more complex than that. Phytochemicals is a new science, and that seems to be very important for health and immunology also. So give us another pillar. So another pillar is that if you want to heal, you have to heal your stress response. And yeah. I'm not... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and I'm, and not not all stress is bad. Some stress is important and good. We learn when we have stress of certain types. Running a marathon can be challenge stress because if it helps you reach into your higher self and expand your understanding of what you're capable of. But if you're in a toxic relationship or if you come home at the end of every day from work and you feel depleted and questioning your value, then you're not going to be able to heal properly because you're going to be in chronic fight, flight, or freeze, mm. and your body is going to be secreting all of these stress hormones, cortisol, adrenaline, norepinephrine, and flooding your immune cells in your body with these uh, hormones, and they will prevent you from healing adequately. So it is, it's really important to either change your environment when that occurs or change your response to the environment. And exercise can be helpful for that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Exercise is highly anti-inflammatory. Yeah. The studies are really clear that exercise really lowers inflammation in the body, as long as it's healthy stress and not toxic stress without adequate rest in between. Well, we could probably do a whole show on the differences between distress and eustress, right? Yeah, that's right. That's a good set of terms. And the eustress, like you talk about running the marathon because it challenges us. I mean, not everybody's going to go out and run a marathon, but we all have something in our lives that represents that marathon, that if we are able to train and practice whatever right. that, that skill is and we achieve that goal, well, that floods us with a bunch of really good hormones too. Yep, absolutely true. Yeah. So when we talk about spontaneous healing, the um, cases that you write about, they are terminal diagnoses, but somebody who can practice these principles when they have a less serious medical or health yes. challenge. Yes, that's absolutely true. These, these factors are very much the foundation for creating well-being and vitality, for knowing your value. For I mean, and this really gets into the fourth pillar of healing and well-being, where a person heals their identity or heals their deeper beliefs. We all grow up with these conscious and unconscious beliefs that we inherit from our parents, from kids on the playground, from the way we interpret experiences that we have, from colleagues at work and, and school. And these become the conscious and unconscious filters through which we view the world and ourselves. And what I've come to believe is that many of us have these unexamined collection of beliefs that some of which are true and some of which are false about who we are and about our value. And if we don't examine those and eliminate the false beliefs, then we are going to be giving ourselves and our bodies and our lives mixed messages and I'm convinced that's a big factor in terms of what becomes possible in terms of healing or, or not. I like this fourth element. It's one that's not spoken of very often. I think it's actually the most important one. I had some people uh, who I've studied 
Dr. Patricia Kane, for example, a physician diagnosed by biopsy with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis back in the 90s. And she said that when she went through this healing process, she fundamentally changed her experience of herself in the world in such a way that she really came to a deeper understanding of her value and focused on what's right about her. She said, like so many other people who I've talked to, uh, that she stopped taking care of everyone else. She stopped responding to the perceived expectations of others and began to focus on what creates well-being for her, that helps her understand her value, that creates a life worth living for her, that felt authentic. Those changes are so deep and they by the end of the day when her she was well from her illness she had, was at, at one point sleeping 18 to 20 hours a day because in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis your lungs turn to cardboard and you die because you can't exchange oxygen with the air so are we talking about lung cancer i mean this which at the time uh, was a death sentence essentially uh, no, uh, this was idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis means that your lungs turn to cardboard. You can't exchange oxygen any longer, and so you die by suffocation. And she was slowly dying by suffocation. She was on oxygen 24 hours a day, still could not exchange enough oxygen to be awake more than uh, a matter of hours a day. So she was sleeping 18, 18 to 20 hours a day. When she went through this process of several months of healing that was very intense, she not only regained her capacity to breathe normally, she then was able to go off of disability, return to work, and she now is so grateful for the way the illness changed her beliefs about herself and her value and her understanding of the friendliness and love in the universe that she now does home visits for very ill people just as a way of saying as a way of giving back out of gratitude for what she's been given. And she also has this website called uh, email called Doc's Daily Chuckle, which she sends out because she thinks humor is such an important part of healing. Oh, so yeah, she's yeah. an amazing lady. And, you know, I've learned so much from her story and similar stories of so many other people. But it's she changed her relationship with herself. She healed her beliefs and her identity. And that's very touching. Extremely touching and very empowering to all of us, especially coming from uh, a doctor and uh, from the perspective of your background in both divinity and medicine. The book we're talking about today is Cured, The Life-Changing Science of Spontaneous Healing. My guest has been Dr. Jeffrey Redeker, MD. He also has a master's in divinity. And you can detect that beautiful woven tapestry of of both sides of your brain <laughs> in, the, in the discussion, you know, to learn more about his work, please visit drjeffreyrediger.com on Twitter at Jeffrey underscore Rediger on Facebook and Instagram. That handle is Dr. Jeffrey Rediger. Come back and hang out. We got more to talk about. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. And we are back. 
continuing our conversation about medical miracles, spontaneous healing, and the race for a cure. My next guest is Dr. David Fagenbaum. He is the author of Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. And David um, writes this memoir from his own journey, which I'll have him tell you about. But I think that the timeliness of this conversation is super important and quite topical. Um, Dr. David Fagenbaum is one of the youngest individuals ever appointed to the faculty at Penn Medicine. After spending months hospitalized in critical condition, having his last rites read, and having four deadly relapses of idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease, IMCD, during his medical school tenure, David decided to fight back by conducting research and creating the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network, CDCN. David is now in the longest remission ever thanks to a treatment that he identified and began testing on himself. Dr. Fagenbaum is many things besides a medical doctor. He has an MBA as well from the, from the Wharton School. He's a former Division I college quarterback. Just thought I'd throw that in. Champion, weightlifter, co-founder of a national grief support network and dad to an adorable little 18 month old, which I loved hearing about. And he's in the house. <laughs> Welcome, David. Thanks for joining us on the show. Lisa, thanks so much for having me. It's such an honor. Oh, well, no, the the honor is mine because I received this book <laughs> in the mail and I was like, oh my goodness, we have to have this man on the show. And it was before the world was upended by germs. And I think we need to really just jump right in. There is a, a quote from the book that I would love for you to read because it's uh, topical for all of us at this moment. Sure. Um, so it starts... This is a story about how I came to understand that hope cannot be a passive concept. It's a choice and a force. Hoping for something takes more than casting out a wish to the universe and waiting for it to occur. Hope should inspire action. And when it does inspire action in medicine and science, they can be harnessed to make that hope a reality beyond your wildest dreams. And there it is, what the world is faced with at the moment. And your journey has certainly exemplified for all of us. First, if you could explain what Castleman disease is, so our listeners know. Sure. Absolutely. So Castleman disease is a rare immune system disorder where basically your immune system begins to attack and shut down your vital organs like your heart, your lungs, your kidneys, for an unknown cause. It's basically um, similar to a lymphoma in some ways, but actually what we're seeing in patients with COVID-19 getting really, really sick, requiring ICU stay, that looks quite similar um, to what has happened to me in the past with my battling idiopathic multicenter Castleman disease. About a third of us diagnosed with Castleman's will die within five years of diagnosis, and another third will die within 10 years of diagnosis. So it was a terrifying diagnosis to get at 25 years old. Um, but as I shared from that quote, um, it was something that has really driven me to turn my hope for a cure into action. And talk a little bit about your journey and how you found your way to a, to, to a treatment that has been successful. Sure. So I decided to go into medicine um, after undergrad. I had lost my mom to cancer um, while I was in college and had promised her that I would dedicate my life to treating cancer and to becoming a doctor. And um, 
I was in my third year of med school when I was totally healthy and out of nowhere, I noticed my uh, as getting a terrible abdominal pain, feeling just incredibly exhausted, noticed lumps and bumps uh, popping up in my neck. And I went to the emergency department after an exam and they did blood work and told me that my liver, my kidneys and my bone marrow were shutting down and they hospitalized me right away. I was so sick that I gained 70 pounds of fluid. I went blind in my left eye due to a retinal hemorrhage, and I drifted in and out of consciousness for, for months. I was eventually diagnosed with this disease, idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease, but I was so sick two days before I was diagnosed that a doctor came into my room and, and told my family to say their goodbyes, and a priest administered my last rites to me. So I really considered that moment when I had my last rites read to me to be the start of my overtime, time that I didn't think that I would have where I can really fully appreciate just how precious life is. I, again, thinking about what's going on in the world with COVID-19, I think that this virus has kind of put us all into feeling like we're in overtime. Like we don't know how much time we have on our clock, but I think that that can be scary, but it can also help us to focus on what's really important in life. I was given a bunch of chemotherapy, which eventually got me into remission, but unfortunately I required, or I had relapse after relapse after relapse, I needed many more rounds of chemotherapy before finally deciding, as I shared from that first quote, that I could no longer just hope for a treatment. If I wanted a treatment or a cure, I would need to, to start searching for one. And I conducted research and eventually found a drug that was developed 30 years ago for kidney transplantation and had never been used before for my disease that I started taking myself. And just as you shared, I've been doing quite well for, for over six years now on this drug. Wow. That's an unbelievable story and certainly one that demonstrates hope. I also want to touch upon creativity because in our darkest hour, in our scariest place, and you and I talked about this before we began the show, that fear, if it is properly directed or shape-shifted, can actually catalyze creativity. Oh, I totally agree. It's all about... Um, harnessing, reflecting on what am I afraid of? What am I hoping for? What am I praying for? What am I wishing for? And then understanding what action can I take to either mitigate that thing that I'm afraid of or potentiate that thing that I'm hoping for. And I think that um, as you and I were discussing, it's not that we should get rid of fear. It's that we should recognize what we're afraid of and then use those things to really guide um, what we do on, on a day-to-day -day basis. One thing I, well, one of the many things I appreciate about you is that you said to me before we got started, I'm afraid. Like there are so many unknowns with this thing and, I, I, and I'm afraid too. I think all of us are afraid. Yeah. And it's okay. I, I totally agree. I mean, in my case, I've had a, a unique background where I've, I've nearly died five times. I shared I had my last rights right to me and I nearly died four more times. The fact that I've gone through these experiences doesn't make it so that I'm no longer afraid of dying and no longer afraid of the fragility of life. But what it has taught me is that the only reason that I'm here today is because I, I really harnessed that fear um, into action. And I started you know, using that to motivate what I did on a day-to-day -day basis. And I, I'm alive and, and other patients are actually benefiting from the drug that I'm on based on being able to harness that fear and, and turn it into, into focus and to say, these are the things that I can control these are the things that I can do today, and it's actually unlikely that I will ever develop a drug or identify a drug that can save my life. However, 
if I don't do something, there is no chance that I will have a drug that could save my life. So I, I think many of us are actually in a really similar boat right now where, where it's unlikely that there is a specific thing any one of us can do that's going to completely, you know, stop this pandemic in its tracks. I mean, it's very, very unlikely. However, there are things that every one of us can do every day to actually start to take back agency. This is something you and I were speaking about before. You know, what can we do to take back our agency? We can follow recommendations to you know, wash our hands and make sure we're, we're not around sick contacts. And, and also we can do things like take care of ourselves. We can eat better. We can exercise. We can make sure we get enough sleep and that we have low stress levels. These are things that we can do um, that will actually materially um, change the outcome that either we or, or those that we love could have due to this virus. When we talk about the germs, right, the cooties out there, they will settle in a place that is hospitable, right? So if your body is run down and you're not doing these self-care checklist items, it makes you more susceptible. I mean, if it comes for us, it comes for us. But there are things that we cannot can do within within self-care that are not really that difficult that can help us remain healthy. And I think that's really important to, to say and helps for me, I know, deal with my fear. Well, if I know I go out for that five mile walk um, and yep. I get some sunshine and I'm sleeping eight to nine hours, I'm actually sleeping more than I have in the past mm-hmm. because I have the time to do so. And it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is wonderful. And and yeah, I love that you're you know finding a silver lining in the midst of this is a scary time, but we need to reflect on it. We need to appreciate when there are wonderful things. Um, I think that we're so caught up in, in, in how terrifying and how devastating this virus is, but, but you're right. Sometimes in the midst of storms, there are wonderful things and we have to appreciate that. It's something that, that my family and I learned in my case, but also with with my mom and with um, what she went through battling cancer, it was everything about her year and a half battling cancer was devastating, but there were some really wonderful, special moments in the midst of that year and a half um, that really helped us to get through it. And I think that we need to do the exact same thing now with COVID-19. I agree. There's one other um, thing I want to ask you about. I want to ask you about several things, but this keeps popping into my mind because you use the words hope and prayer together often in your conversation. And as a man of science, um, one would not necessarily think that either, well, hope always is a doctor, but prayer, maybe not necessarily so. Yeah, I think that you're absolutely right. There seems to be this kind of clear divide in the sand. You know, you either believe in science or you believe in God. And um, I really like to emphasize and not, not be either or, but it actually be be, it could be both and, or it could be either or. I think that what I've found is that many times I've gotten frustrated when someone has said, um, you know, so-and-so has this diagnosis, we are going to, you know, storm the gates of heaven with prayer and that will cure them. And that's frustrated me because um, I've seen so many incredible people who are deserving of miracles. Who, if anyone in the world deserved a miracle, they did. Um, who quote unquote didn't get that miracle? You know, they 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 passed despite their disease. So I think the the belief in in purely saying I'm only going to hope and pray, um, I think, in my opinion, is the wrong approach. But I also think the approach of saying I'm not going to hope and I'm not going to pray. I'm just going to act. 
I think that also might be the wrong approach. I think that the two can absolutely fit together where you can be hopeful, you can be prayerful, but those, in my opinion, this is again, just my opinion, but you should really reflect on what you're hoping for and praying for and use those things to guide action. So it's not hope or action, it's hope and action. And I think that's the sweet spot that we all need to go for. I, I agree with you. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Dr. David Fagenbaum. He is the author of Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. And that is a race I think that we are all in alongside with you, David, at this point. To learn more about David's work, please visit ChasingMyCure.com on Twitter at David Fagenbaum. And that's F-A-J-G-E-N-B-A-U-M. And on Facebook, the page is the same, David Fagenbaum. And on Instagram, it's D Fagenbaum. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Continuing the conversation with my guest today, David Fagenbaum, we're talking about the race for a cure. Let's get back to that conversation. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, I have the great pleasure of hanging out with Dr. David Fagenbaum. He is the author of Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. David was diagnosed with what is called idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease, IMCD, during medical school. And uh, rather than being the patient or the victim, he got busy helping to find a cure for uh, what ails him. And I think that this discussion is relevant, not just to praise and share your book, David, but also to mm -hmm. empower our listeners to have some agency in their lives as they come up with a new way of being amidst COVID-19 and managing the fear that the world really is experiencing at this moment. Absolutely. We were chatting during the break, as you know, about how many times we're encouraged during scary times like now to find silver linings, you know, find that thing within your day or within your life that is positive because of the really tough times. You know, maybe you're spending more time with your family than you would. And that, that's, that's a really great silver lining. Something that I, I've found from my experience is that we should definitely look for silver linings, but we should also look to create silver linings. So we should say, okay, this is a really tough time. What can I do? What action can I take today 
to make this positive. Maybe maybe there's something um, that you can do virtually uh, by FaceTime or Skype with someone that you haven't seen in a long time and you can make their day or you can do something that you wouldn't have done otherwise, but that takes action. And I think that this whole concept of action, as we were saying before the break, hope and action, uh, I think is really what we should all be going for. Well, the creation part, the verb, that the action, the silver lining comes from doing something. And it's funny, we were talking about humor also. And I have a friend in Australia, and I've been hearing from my friends around the world the past few days, which is pretty cool. Like we all have a little bit more time to connect. And I have a friend that lives in Australia who owns a toilet paper company. And so Uh (laughs) it's pretty funny. Like he said, business is really good. Knock on wood, you know, and I'm like, well, I might be leaning on you for a care package in a few weeks. And, you know, it's sort of sick, silly humor, but it's like kind of makes us in this thing together. I totally agree. Humor um, in the midst of tough times. And and I, I do talk about this a lot in my book because humor helped me so much during tough times. I mean, you'd think when you're in the ICU or if you're hunkered down in quarantine because you might get COVID-19, that, that humor would be the last thing that you'd need. But but just as you said, there's something so social about laughing and about being positive. I, I'll, I'll share a quick story from my uh, third hospitalization. At this stage, I've been hospitalized for almost six months. I uh, had been nearly died for this is just almost died for the third time about two weeks before. And it was New Year's Eve of 2010. And my dad and I decided to take a walk around the hematology oncology floor at this hospital. And as we passed the family waiting area, there was a gentleman who looked like he'd been drinking on New Year's Eve. He was kind of like swaying in his chair. And on our next lap, we saw that he had fallen onto the ground. <laughs> so my dad ran over to him and helped this this drunk gentleman back into his chair and he looked at my dad and I, and he said, thanks so much. Good luck to you and your wife. And we're like, wife, what is he talking about? And then I looked at my belly and I had such a big belly because of all the fluid, because my liver and kidneys weren't working that he actually thought I was my dad's pregnant wife. Oh. And you know, there are two things that can happen Hilarious. when someone confuses you as your father's pregnant wife. You know, one, you can, you know, burst into tears and say, Oh my gosh, you know, I cannot believe that I just got, you know, confuses my father's pregnant wife, you know, this is a low point, or you can just burst into laughter. And my dad and I, we were crying, we were laughing so hard. And and I think that, as you said, it wasn't just funny to me, but it was funny to us. And that was a a sense of connection that we needed uh, during such a tough time. Yeah, humor is is such a valuable tool to all of us as we go through this. And, you know, all the crazy get-ups. I mean, I can speak from my own experience because I'm a caretaker of a 95-year-old. So, like, I, like, suit up when I go out into the world. And I'm showing up in places with, you know, my my N95 that was gifted to yep. me from a friend who's a doctor, my uh, my latex gloves, and if I had one of those bio suits, you know, those paper disposable suits, I'd probably wear yeah. th- that too, because I feel like <laughs> this woman cannot die on my watch. That is not acceptable. Yep. You know, and it's... You're so right. It, yeah, it's not even about any one of us. Just as you're saying, I mean, this is about the people that we love who are more susceptible. I, I certainly fall into the more susceptible category because the drug I'm on is weakening my immune system. But in doing so... It's saving my life. But of course, people like me are at high risk. And so I just love that, that you're thinking about what sacrifices you can take for people that you love. Yeah. And the flip side is I'm separated from my kids and I would love nothing better 
than to drive across the country and go get them. And I know that it, it it's the wrong move for a whole host of reasons, especially the newest news, right? That the young, the, 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 the young and hardy are also vulnerable. That's exactly right. And, you know, as a father of an 18 month old, I, I, I can't imagine, you know, being separated by that kind of distance with this going on. But, um, so I can, I can really appreciate that, that desire to, you know, want to be co-located. But as you said, um, you know, we have to be really careful. Yep. So we hang out, we FaceTime all the time. And nice. I, I would say that connectivity has gone up. I don't know what your experience has been during all of this. But I feel more connected and having more regular contact with those that I love now than I had three weeks ago. I totally agree. I'm I'm staying, my wife and I and daughter staying with with my in-laws. And just last night, my father-in-law was talking about how this experience has made him appreciate health and made good health when you have it and made him appreciate family um, in a way that maybe he, he didn't appreciate before. And so it's, it's realizing that, you know, our health is the most important thing that we can have. Um, and, and our family is right up there uh, with, with the most important thing as well. And these diseases, whether it's what you have come through or COVID-19, they are agnostic. They really don't care your age, your color, your socioeconomic background, your education. It's like it, right. it, 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 it can come to anyone. And I guess the idea is to really recognize that, that it is a we thing. It's not a me thing. That's exactly right. It's a we thing. It can affect any one of us. And I, I think that, you know, knowing that, you know, no one is immune to this thing, it, it, we all are in this together. Uh, another aspect that I think connects diseases and individuals across diseases is that actually a number of drugs that are already approved for other conditions are being tried right now to treat patients with COVID-19. This is a concept called drug repurposing, something that we've been really pushing hard in the Castleman disease space. And that's that there are 1,500 drugs already FDA approved for something. Um, and there are 7,000 diseases with nothing, um, no FDA approved drugs. So how can we think about reusing those 1,500 drugs in new ways? Because COVID-19 is on the top of our everyone's radar right now. But when things like this are not happening, I and many others worry about the 7,000 rare diseases that affect 30 million Americans with no therapies available. And so we really need to, to get creative about ways that we utilize drugs that were developed for one condition for other conditions. And actually just today, I, I saw some more headlines about some already approved drugs. In fact, there's a Castleman disease drug that was developed 40 years ago um, in China, or, or sorry, no, it was actually developed in Japan um, called tocilizumab that's now being used in China to treat COVID-19 patients. So all these diseases are interconnected. Things that work for one disease can, can have an impact for other diseases too. The point well taken. Very, very important. And I, I want to come to the little part of the story that uh, I find very romantic, and that is you married your, your college sweetheart or your high school sweetheart? That's right. College, yeah. I think that's pretty wonderful. <laughs> it is, especially when you think about the ups and the downs that, that we went through. Caitlin actually broke up with me a few months before I got sick. Um, we dated for a few years, and we both had this kind of mindset that if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. You know, We, we were both 25 years old. We've got all the time in the world. And then a few months later, I was in the ICU 
dying with multi-organ failure. And all of a sudden I realized, wait a minute, I didn't have all the time in the world. You know, these last few months when I could have fought for our relationship, we could have had, you know, some really special time before, before I was gone. And, um, when I survived that very first time, I left the hospital realizing that I could no longer just say, you know, we've got all the time in the world. If it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And I adopted this motto, which is think it, do it. If you think it, if you, if you want to do something, do it. Because for me, I didn't regret anything that I had done in my life when I was on my deathbed the first time. The things I regretted were things I didn't do or I didn't say. And so I think that COVID-19 again reminds us just how precious life is. And I think should really encourage us if we think that we want to do something, we should do it. Of course, within the boundaries of things that we should be doing these days, we need to be careful, but we really um, need to, you know, don't talk yourself out of doing those things. Because when I brought that mindset back to Caitlin and I's relationship, after I got out of the hospital for those six months, we started dating again and we eventually got married. Now we have a daughter and, and that's really just you know, not holding back, not saying, you know, we can do this another time, but really embracing the moment. Yeah. Well, now is the time, you know, carpe diem. I think that you are exactly. the poster man for, for <sighs> the, the right way to live carpe diem, you know, not recklessly, but mindfully. <sighs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I love, hanging out with you maybe maybe come back again we'll do an update i would love that i'd love that um, I, would, I would love that so much me too you've you've made my day i've had the great pleasure of hanging out with dr david fagenbaum he is the author of chasing my cure a doctor's race to turn hope into action to learn more about david's work and the book please visit the website chasingmycure.com on twitter at david fagenbaum Facebook, David Fagenbaum. And on Instagram, that handle is D Fagenbaum. Thanks so much, David. Uh, stay safe and stay as joyful as you are. You as well. This has been such a positive window in my day. So thank you so much. It's going to last for, for many days. M me too. Right back at you. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Dr. Jeffrey Rediger and Dr. David Fagenbaum, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Stay safe and joyful. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio. KBUU-RadioMalibu.net and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange. <laughs>